perspective hopefully help us understand all that's taking place. So often, just because of time and limitations, we take out a passage, we look at it, we examine it closely, and there are times where that's very advantageous and sometimes where it's against us. And so today, I wanna, I'm preaching through the book of Luke, and I really want us to see kind of the flow of where we've been over the past, really, six weeks, the past month, and where I think Luke is leading us in his discussion and revelation that Jesus is the Christ, not only the Son of God, but Emmanuel, God with us. And in doing so, I want to contrast a little bit between the ministry of Jesus. I'm just feeding forward, so to speak, here, because I want you to know that I'm going to poke us all just a little bit today. So I hope your grace will be extended toward me. I, I, I want to contrast what we see in chapters 5, 6, and 7 between the ministry and compassion of Jesus and the position of the Pharisees. Looking at it in such a way that as I've looked in the mirror of my own life, the fear that the longer I live, the more I'm becoming a Pharisee is always standing, staring me in the face. And if me, then probably you, uh, us, and in this culture, more so. So, just feeding forward, letting you know where we're going, and, and saying that, that's kind of like a cue up, this could take a while. So, uh, but we got plenty of time, right? All right, great. Some 25, almost 30 years ago now, Jack Hayford wrote an article called, What Harp Is the World Hearing? In it, he prophetically talked about the rise of what was known then as the religious right in America. Um, Jerry Falwell, others were leading a, a movement, and Jack Hayford was a, a, a godly, uh, charismatic, Pentecostal pastor of a four-square church in California, very well-known author. Um, and in his article, he was... He was looking at the political landscape of the day and saying, what is the world hearing from the church? What is the world? And his, his prophetic, really, edge in the article, which is so timely, was, if we go down this path, where will it lead us? What will the church become? Who will the church become? Will the church lose focus over its mission for the sake of political gain. Now, I'm not really, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking this morning about politics. This could easily apply to politics, but it could also apply to every other aspect of the ministry of the church and who we are and how we view the world and how we view society around us. So I think we'll see that as we go along. But in this article, um, Hayford says this, am I called to rub, excuse me, let me back it up. Am I called to rub the world's face in its stew, or am I commissioned to reach out with the life-giving love of the gospel of Jesus Christ? This morning, I want to contrast these two groups of people that we see, Jesus, really, and his followers, and then all the other things that are going on with the Pharisees. So here we go. Look at Luke chapter 7. Let's read the passage. I want to kind of 
summarize it a little bit, give you an overview of it, and then look back at what's happened to lead us to this point. So in Luke chapter 7, verses 11, 17, it says, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So you get the picture a little bit. It says, it starts off, I'm going to take this passage apart now that I just read it to you, but soon afterwards, what happens right before this is uh, the centurion's servant has been healed. Remember in Capernaum, you have the story of uh, Capernaum, Jesus' hometown. You have the story of the centurion and his faith that he says to Jesus, just say it and he'll be healed. You don't even have to come to my house. And that's what happened right prior to this. And now Jesus has traveled to this little village called Nain. It's the only time we hear about it in the Bible. It's probably about 25 miles south, uh, southwest of Nazareth, uh, Capernaum. Jesus has traveled there with a pretty big entourage. He's got his disciples and a large crowd following him. And they're coming up to the city gate of this little village. And the city gate was probably, in this case, a town of 200. The gate wasn't anything more than just symbolic. Like, it was just a little gate, probably. <laughs> Maybe an art. Who knows? That they were coming out. And so you've got this crowd. It says large crowd. But this crowd of mourners who's coming out of Nain, and Jesus and his followers coming into. And at the moment they meet, Jesus and his followers meet this crowd, and they're carrying a dead guy out. Now, the coffin here was probably an open coffin. It was an open coffin. It has different names in biblical language, but it was, we call them coffins, but it was a coffin with no lid. Probably just a box or something that, this guy was being carried out with, a young man. And the Bible makes it clear that this man, how Jesus knows this doesn't tell us, but the story tells us that he was the son, only son is the way it's really worded, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So now this orphan widow is coming out of the gate in such sorrow as you can imagine with her only son. It goes on and says, when the Lord saw her. By the way, this is the first place in the book of Luke that Jesus is called the Lord. It's significant, this story. And it says, his heart went out to her. And we don't have really the words to talk about um, we might talk about a broken heart or a crushed heart or a, 
there's a, there's a sense in this word that it, it, it hits him in the stomach. It hits him in the, it's from his inside. So there's one thing to read a story and just to intellectually say, oh, that's terrible. That's a bad thing. You know, we acknowledge with our mind. It's another thing when you just feel it inside of you. And it's the depth of it coming out of Jesus. And he says to the mother, don't cry. Kind of a tough statement at her only son's funeral where he commands her, don't cry. And then he goes on and he goes up and he puts his hand on the coffin, the open casket, and he just says to the guy, young man, I say to you, get up. Ever notice that the prayers of Jesus aren't that long? You know, we, 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 we think, okay, this is going to take a while. I'm going to have to really pray. And, and we think length equals power. But I would say presence equals power. The presence of God in it equals the power. And Jesus just says to, her, to them, young man, I say to you, get up. And remarkably, the dead man sits up and begins to talk. So two signs of life here. Well, the first unsign of life is he's dead in the coffin. First sign of life is he sits up. Can you imagine being the people carrying him out? Sits up, and to prove it, life, breath, he talks. It's one thing to say, but breath, the, the, the breath of life comes out of him as he begins, begins to speak. And then Jesus, I'm sure they have to set this thing down by now and the guy's getting out, and Jesus somehow physically gives this young man back to his mother. Notice what you don't see in this story up till this point. The mother has never said a word. Does she know who Jesus is? Does she not know who Jesus is? Is she a follower? Is she not a follower? Did she ask for mercy? Did she say, you can do something to save my son? Not a word from the mother. That the point of action here is all about Jesus. He saw. His heart was broken. He spoke. We don't have anything about the quality of this woman's life. Did she deserve this? Was she a righteous woman? Was she a good woman? Was she a leader in that we know nothing other than Jesus' heart went out to this woman? All the people out of the city, coming into the city, his followers, these town people, they're like filled with, they're awestruck, which you can imagine. Dead guy sits up, starts talking, awesome. And they praised God and they said, a great prophet has appeared among us. Now, there's so many references to this. I'm not going to get go into the whole story. But Elijah once in Kings went to a village named Zarephath where he met a widow. He asked her to bake some bread. She said, I'm just gathering sticks to, you know, go die with my son. And he basically says, hey, Help me, and you'll never run short. You remember that story? Well, her son dies. And Elijah, the wording here is very familiar. It's very similar. 
But Elijah throws himself on the boy and cries out to God that he would heal the boy. That he would raise him to life. Almost a this isn't fair kind of thing. We've made it to this point. God raised this boy back to life. And the boy is raised back to life. And the wording is almost identical. He gives the boy back to his mother. So there's this similarity. But the greatness and greaterness of Jesus is seen in this passage. He doesn't throw himself on the boy. He doesn't even appear to his father God because he is God. He says to the boy, get up. Wake up. A great prophet has appeared among us. That is such an understatement. But this next statement, God has come to help his people. I'm not even sure they knew what they were declaring at this point. That God really was there to help his people. It, it, it seemed more of a statement of, uh, okay, God is moving kind of thing. But in the greatness of the story, it's telling us, hey, God is here. And as you can see, as you can imagine, news about Jesus spreads through the whole countryside. I mean, it just goes, now, big crowd going to become really big crowd uh, because he's raised a dead man. Now, great story. I'm going I'm to look at it even more as we come up. The, the point I want you to see in this story is the unbelievable compassion of Jesus to come upon this scene heartbroken, reaching out, healing, raising from the dead this dead boy. As we go back to chapter 5, let me just run it here. Things have been building. The way Luke frames this from Luke 5 through 7, things start to really be getting bigger, so to speak. As you see, and we're kind of in this whole section on the miracles of Jesus, you see the miraculous move of what Jesus has been, done, been doing. Remember in the synagogue when he was teaching in Capernaum, he, a, a demonized guy speaks out and he throws the, he casts the demon out. So you see demonic deliverance. By the way, this is just a side point, just for fun. Would we see demonic deliverance as like the low point? Things are going to be building from here. In our mind, sometimes we see deliverance as like, ooh, that's, a, that's like for advanced. You know, Jesus starts there, and then the miraculous just keeps growing. He heals, he goes to a dinner, he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She gets up, starts serving. Scott and Gabriel did a great job of looking at various passages of this over the past several weeks. Thanks, guys. Uh, he heals the crowds that gather. Then he gathers, you know, the big fishing miracle happens, and he gathers his disciples unto himself. I mean, we see just in this alone, Jesus is over authorities and principalities. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He's over nature. It's just growing. Then he heals a leper. Um, and then the paralyzed man is lowered through the roof, who's, who he says, your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. Then he, without even going to him, he heals the centurion's son just by speaking the word. And now he raises a dead man back to life. It, the intensity just keeps 
moving forward. And all through this passage, with maybe the exception of the one we're seeing here today, but it's going to come back, we see Jesus' mercy and his grace and his compassion contrasted with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. All of this compassion is flowing out of Jesus. And what we see in contrast is a group of religious leaders who seem to be opposed to compassion. They're more concerned with the right of it, the law of it. Is this in order, so to speak? Let me just look at the Pharisees for just a second. They were uh, very conservative. They were the conservatives of their day um, in, in, in every way, politically, socially, economic, just name it, they were the conservatives. They were Jewish, obviously. They were zealous to oppose sin. They were highly, highly committed, giving their lives to this. They were leaders within their community. They were in the synagogues and temples. They were in the religious places. They fasted and prayed regularly. Uh, they even tithed. I mean, they were the, the religious leaders. But there's a problem with them that that's, we see throughout, and especially they contrast everything Jesus does within this story. So let me just talk about this. And again, your, um, your mind may go to, okay, this is that group of people, this is that group of people, this is this group of people. Here's what I want you to see this morning that I've been seeing all week. This is not that group of people, this is me. This is us, so to speak, if we're not careful. That we, the longer we go on this journey, the more we need to battle the rise of the pharisaical spirit within our own hearts. Some of you are more convinced than others on this. Just hang with me. So Jesus has a conflict with this group of people. Let's go back to the story of the paralytic. Gabriel talked about this um, last week. They, they exemplified a lack of forgiveness. When Jesus saw their faith, he doesn't mean the Pharisees, he means the guys lowered, the faith of the guys who lowered the dead guy into the living room. Um, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. I love it. This statement is just so rich, isn't it? Friend? Hey, I just met you. Friend, your sins are forgiven. To which the Pharisees, who are protectors of who gets forgiven and who doesn't get forgiven, and how they get forgiven, are totally offended. And they're saying, who, who is this fellow? They, they don't use friend. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, by the way, this is the whole point of the thing. Jesus came because he is God. But they just don't know it yet. But here's the idea. They, they felt like they had become protectors of who gets forgiveness and what were the hoops that you had to go through in order to get forgiven um, they 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 had made the 
the rules so complicated that almost anybody, nobody could get forgiven. Does this kind of ring a bell like today? In our culture, we are quick to heap on guilt, but we don't provide a way out. Now, some people would say, well, that's a very liberal mindset. You know, the idea of cancel culture, that's a liberal position. And I would say, you know what? It's, it, it's as old as time, so to speak. It, it is nothing new. We love to condemn people, and then we don't want to help them find a way out. Why? Because if, if my balloon can only be five feet off the ground, but it's really high if yours is only two feet, right? So if I lower your balloon, I feel like I'm just soaring. Because we compare ourselves against ourselves versus what God is. God is here to offer forgiveness. Good news. Great tidings. Why? Because the gospel has come. Is the world hearing good news, great tidings, joy to all people? Or is it hearing, oh, you sinners, there is no way out for you. The Pharisees, the leaders, should have been the people leading the charge of getting people to come to God. But instead, because of their lack of forgiveness or means of forgiveness, they're, they're shutting the door to people. That's just one. Also, they didn't want to fellowship with those sinners. They avoided fellowship. Next story. Levi has a big banquet with his friends. Why? Why are these friends sinners? Well, that's the only people Levi knew. He invited the people he knew to a party because he's come to Jesus. Now he's wanting his friends to meet this Jesus, so he has a big party. How did the religious leaders act toward this when Levi holds this, holds this great banquet for Jesus at his house, large crowd, of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with these people? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You know, the, the, the Pharisees, they were so afraid that they would get caught in sin and now not have any way for forgiveness, that they totally avoided anybody who might be in that camp. So let's not go with them. Let's not hang out with Pharisees and, you know, the, um, excuse me, with sinners and the bad people because it, their dirt might get on me. And if so, then I got no way to get clean again hardly because they know that door is shut. So they try to teach avoiding fellowship. You know, Jesus says just the opposite. to When he prays for his followers that are with him and coming after him, he said, and the world hates them. Who? Us. Because they do not belong to the world just as I do not. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Please pay attention here. Jesus is not saying we should live a sectarian lifestyle that has no context with the world, contact with the world. As a matter of fact, he's praying, I think, just the opposite. He said, they are not a part of this world any more than I am. Make them pure and holy 
By teaching them your words of truth. How do you get pure and holy? It is not separating from the people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It's by hearing the words of God and receiving them. And he even says, as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Us. That was for his followers, but direct and later. I am sending them into the world. I have come to call sinners to turn from their sins, not to spend my time with those who think they are already good enough. This is the, this is the living Bible way of putting it. I think it's pretty direct. Just a thought. How do you spend all your time? Who do you spend your time with? Do you know, I know, the longer I become a Christian, I've been a pastor for almost 30 years, um, I'm friends with so many people in this room. Honestly, I don't have that many worldly friends. Most of my friends are here. Now, I love fellowshipping with everybody in this place. But at the same time, the good news of the gospel has to go out somewhere. Trying to find a way to minister life to those who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we fellowship with the world? How do we fellowship with people who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Let me give you some, just some clues. First of all, stop trying to, stop trying to um, answer questions that you can't answer. In other words, sometimes we feel like, I can't, I can't talk to people because I don't have all the answers. You know what? You're right. You don't. And, th and there are some questions that are unanswerable. But then we feel like we have to answer them because what if somebody asks me? Aren't I supposed to know all the answers? No, you're not going to know. You're just not. You know? Is homosexuality genetic or is it environmental? Oh, if I don't know the answer to that, I can't go out and talk to people. Somebody may ask me that. So you're like, well, what's the answer? <laughs> the answer is yes. You can think about it later. Avoid harping on sin. In other words, most people already know. I'm, there's some that don't, but... Avoid harping on people's sin. In other words, very few people come to grace in Jesus Christ by being told that they're sinners and going to hell. They, they just, very few. I, I don't know, I've never met a person who got saved by the guy standing on the corner saying sinners are going to hell with a sign. Oh my goodness, I need to stop and go to church right now. Notice that Jesus doesn't, in the New Testament, who are the only people that you're commanded to not fellowship with? You think this is a trick question? Who are the only people the Bible really says, don't fellowship with them? Believers who are unrepentant in their sin, as far as I can tell. They're the only people you're told not to fellowship with. I could stay here a long time. I'm going to move on. I, I could cause problems. Um, avoid defensiveness. 
Hey, let me just tell you this straight up. If you look at that prayer of Jesus, yes, the world hates you. Don't get defensive about it. No reason to. Jesus said it's going to happen. He's gonna, he said, the world's going to hate you. Just as it hates me, it's going to hate you. Yes, the news organizations are biased. Yes, things seem to be bad here or there. Don't be defensive about it. Defensiveness never really moved us down the field very far. Defenses are to stop things from moving, right? Even in football, right? You with me? Defenses are stop stuff. We're to be on the offense, I think, by how? Ministering grace of Jesus Christ. And you're not going to control anybody. Avoid a mentality of control. So, I can preach a whole sermon on this, but stop trying to control your spouse. Stop trying to control your children. You can't control anybody. You can't. You can barely control yourself, right? Hence the term self-control. Most of us are having a real battle here and real problems just trying to, you know, I don't want to do that. The things I want to do, I don't do the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. What? Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God who gives me life. And, you know, we think, oh, he's going to give me life. Now I'm going to control everybody. That's my, no, he says, stay walking in the spirit. I, I say this all the time. You can't control another person. The best you can do is pray for them. The best weapon in your arsenal to see another person change is prayer. Avoid a mentality of control. Now, if you can't control your spouse and your children, do you think you're going to control the country? Do you think your, your, your attitude and spirit about an issue is going to control that? Now, I'm not saying not to pray about something, but I'm just saying we move forward in a, what we have given as weapons of warfare are to move the gospel forward. To move the truth of Jesus forward. Okay, I got some others to share. Here we go. They were also, they were also offended by festivity. Now, <clears throat> some of you are noticing, oh, he's just trying to get all alliteration here. And you're right. Um, remember, he then um, is approached by the Pharisees because his disciples weren't sad enough. Basically, He's, you know, the Pharisees come, hey, Jesus, you guys are feasting instead of fasting. John the Baptist's disciples always fast and pray. I, uh, I, I, I just want to um, just point out, as soon as someone starts using comparisons between you and someone else in your faith, it's, it's the devil. I mean, really. Jesus, our spiritual disciplines, as God is leading us to do them, is what God is wanting us to do. But again, we want to judge other people, not only by their sin level, but by what we perceive as their holiness or lack of holiness level. And because we can't really see in a person's heart, we're going to judge their holiness level based on you just fill in the blank. In this case, 
these guys, what is wrong with them? They're having a good time. Shouldn't they be fasting? Jesus asked, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Someday he will take it away from them, and then they will fast. Look, I, I, again, I'm getting slightly older. I, I still am doing great. By the way, I ran a half marathon last weekend before I came to church. Thank you very much. But I didn't preach. So those, days are, those days are gone. That's why Gabriel preached last week. Point being this. The older I get, again, the more I've seen in Christian life, and many Christians are offended by other Christians having any measure of fun. They think they must be sinful. So we not only try to avoid sin, but in case we want to avoid sin, we're like the Pharisees. Any fun must be leading us towards sin. Therefore, to stay away from sin, I'm going to stay away from fun. Now, if you've been around the fullness staff very much, you'll understand that we place a high value on enjoying what God has given us. We like fun. I think pretty much everything's funny. Uh, and that's to my detriment, uh, honestly. But if indeed the joy of the Lord is my strength, it's not the misery. It's not the, the angst. It's, not the, it's the joy. There should be some level of fun. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. There's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Is that what the world sees of us? And they were really pushing, so to speak, a loss of freedom in the Lord. Next story in this account is in Luke 6 when Jesus and his followers, his disciples are out and they're, they, they, they're hungry on the Sabbath and they get some grain to feed themselves as they're walking through. And the Pharisees criticize them and he says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do, good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? This is this is, to me, critical. There's, Jesus acknowledges, keep, keep the Sabbath holy, right? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But as far as I can tell, the Pharisees had added like 39 laws under this law with like six subpoints. They preach like I do. They only have three points, but under each point they have like five subpoints with five other subpoints. This is what happens. They've got so many subpoints that that the freedom that God was trying to proclaim in the law got smushed. The yoke became too heavy. Are we I started with this. Are we demonstrating the heart and compassion of Jesus to the world around us? Or have, over time, we, like the Pharisees, say, I need to protect God. I need to love those God loves. I need to make sure things keep in order. I need to make sure things don't get off the rails. 
so much so that we've become more pharisaical than Christ-like. I ask myself this all the time because I see myself in all of these points. I see at times, man, that really irritates me. You know, what, what, what are they doing? Why aren't they doing X, Y, Z? I'm not, by the way, most of the time when I'm thinking that, I'm thinking of you. <laughs> why, why don't people in our church do this or this or this? Or that or that or that? Is it not hard to, to like, and the longer you're in it, the more you're like ticked off. That people aren't doing what you think they should do. And the joy of it gets robbed from you. Rather than the compassion of Jesus flowing out of you saying, God, break my heart with the things that break yours. I'm more like, Lord, what the heck do they think they're doing? <laughs> Haven't they been around long enough to know this is what they should be doing? Sorry, if I'm the only one, just pray for your pastor. He needs grace. <clears throat> so, I'm going to close with these three warnings. And I'm going to try and move through them because I know our hour is late. Three warnings for us today that will, I think if we'll look at these just for a second, it'll help us avoid that, that heart of a Pharisee and maybe get the gut-wrenching compassion of Jesus back in our lives. Just because you're right on the issues doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you're right on the issues doesn't... Now listen, I'm not saying to you, please don't mishear me. Don't hear, Park says it doesn't matter where we stand on issues. I heard him say it. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I want to be right on the issues, but being right on the issues doesn't mean you're right with God. Be right with God and right on the issues. Have the heart of God in it. Jesus, again, speaking to the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Goes on and says, blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Again, I, we could go on with this, but I think you see the point. They're saying, we're the ones right on the issues. We're the one, and you know what? Pretty much they were. They, they had right, but their heart was so like dirty over the whole thing. Their heart, they were not right with God. Therefore, what they tried to impose on people on external issues made them not right with other people as well. They were trying to give a corrupt message. The message may have been right, but it was corrupted from the root. We need to be, we need to be right with God through Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that when we go out and talk to people, we have compassion. Going on. In order to be in step with God, another warning, in order to be in step with God, you've got to understand the overall purposes of God. Now, I'm not saying you understand every purpose of God, like, you know, everything God is up to. But sometimes if you get, if you get focused on the minutiae, if you get focused on the little things, then you think that is the purpose of God. I mean, you can even go back to the Ten Commandments and look at the law and the various commandments. And if you just focus on one and that becomes your gong that you're going to sound like keeping the Sabbath holy, 
then you miss the overall purpose of God. What is the Sabbath principle that God's trying to, to, to communicate through the law that applies to us as humanity? And you can tell when I get short on time because I just go faster and faster when I talk. But it's important to understand that we need to take a step back and he says to them, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. What is he saying? You're so focused on the little that you've missed the, the big. And in order to stay in step with God, we, we need to understand at some level, what God is doing in the big picture of things. He said, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Remember, I told you, I'm not saying that issues don't matter. He says this, I think, here. You should have done both. But you, if, you ha if, you, if you don't do the big, the little is going to be corrupted. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Romans 2.1 says this. Oh, this is really good. I'm going to. Romans 1. Do you read it with a broken heart? Or do you read it with those sinners? You know Romans 1? The part where God says he's going to turn them over. He starts that whole list. You know, they do this and they do this and he turns them over to sinful heart. Now they do this and do this and do this. And I'm afraid if we don't read it right, by the time we get to the end, we're like, yeah, God, turn them over. Turn those sinners over to their own corruption. Turn them over to their own sexual depravity. Turn them over, God. That's what they deserve. They need a turnover. And then he says, oh, can you go back? Sorry, I got excited. Go back one, yeah, right there. He says, after this whole turn them over thing, he says this, Paul does. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm just as bad? Yeah, you're just as bad. It's the whole point of Romans 1, 2, and 3. We think sin is here and you know, I'm not that bad a sinner, so I'm doing here. He's saying, sin is sin. Dirt is dirt. You're condemning those who you think have worse sins than you do, but you're just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you know what you're doing? You're condemning yourself. I think you should never read Romans 1 without reading Romans 2, verse 1. It'll help you in that spirit of things. Final point is this. The, ends, the end does not justify the means. Do not be overcome by evil. And in some translations, don't try to overcome evil with evil. But instead, overcome evil with what? The compassion of Jesus Christ. Now, again, my point here this morning is not to condemn any people group. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. It's to get us to take a step back and say, oh, Jesus, what am I feeding myself on a daily basis? Where am I becoming more like a Pharisee? 
or am I becoming more like Jesus? God, please let the compassion, the compassionate heart of Jesus fill me up. Lord, help me not get so mad at people groups because I think they're ungodly. Help me not to get so mad at the people around me because I think they're ungodly. Instead, help me be like Jesus who walks into a town, sees a woman, has no idea, at least as far as we can tell, what her righteous standing was, who she was, what she did, and instead his heart was broken and he spoke this powerful word that raised her son from the dead. May I have that compassionate heart of Jesus today. Lord, I pray right now that you would just move in our hearts and our lives. Lord, help us to see people as you see them. Lord, I want to stand before you and confess my own, at times, lack of compassion. Oh, I'm being generous, Lord. You know that. It's more than at times. It's a lot. And instead, how judgment just seeps out from within me and us. Lord, may we repent before you this morning. May we come to a place where we say, Jesus, that's me. I, I see myself in the mirror of the Pharisees. And instead, God, I want to have the compassionate heart of Jesus today. Spirit of God, shine deep in our hearts the light of your truth and show us who we really are. Lord, when we go from this place, may the harp that the world hears us playing is the harp of the good news of Jesus Christ rather than any other. Stand up with me. We're going to have some ministry teams come, and I know the hour is getting a little later, but we're going to have some ministry teams come, and if you'd like to have prayer, maybe you just identify even yourself. If I could have some ministry teams come, a bunch of teams just come to the front. We haven't done this quite like this in a while, where we'll have different teams that will be spread out across the front praying for people. If you'd like to receive prayer for healing or direction, or freedom. I, I want to say this. The compassionate heart of Jesus is here to touch you. To meet you. To free you. To heal you. So if you'd like to receive prayer while we worship. Just come and receive prayer. If today is a day where you say, I don't need prayer. Well, pray for those who are getting prayer. But it, also pray for yourself. Just seek the Lord. And ask him for the softening of your heart this morning. As you declare he is worthy, ask that his power and might would be at work within you to touch the world around you. Let's worship. If you need prayer, please come. Receive prayer from these ministry teams right now as we worship.
worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Every breath we could ever breathe, we 
that's blessed you this morning. I pray that he will take only the parts of the word this morning that were, were good and make them uh, become a part of your heart and everything else would fall to the side. I want to encourage you to go out today with the compassion and love of Jesus just coming out from inside of you so that the good news is communicated to the world, the world around us. We're going to continue to minister here. The music will be playing softly in the background as those are getting prayer. If, if you're like, wow, I didn't get prayer yet. Um, just come and sit at the front on the front row. And one of these teams, as soon as they open up, you can get prayer for them. Uh, they'll stay as long as we need to. So if you still need prayer, for those who don't, I'm going to ask you to quietly, while this prayer time is taking place, just go fellowship in the foyer. It's a beautiful day outside. But leave this kind of as a sacred space for people to receive prayer as they need it in the moments, moments ahead. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great day in the Lord. If you need prayer, just move to the front. One of these teams will open. If you don't need prayer, just fellowship in the foyer. Don't hurry away, but fellowship in the foyer. The team will be playing softly in the background while those are um, still, still receiving prayer.
Yeah. 